This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 3rd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Brendan Cologne discusses making fuel using artificial leaves, and David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the path to dog domestication. The story starts out with a pile of dog genomes, something like 600. So Dave, what do we get from looking at this many dog genes? Well, when you look at this many dogs, you start to see some interesting genetic patterns. And what the researchers saw in this study was that dogs seem to split into East and West groups. So there's a group of Asian dogs, including dogs like uh, village dogs in Tibet and Vietnam, dogs like the Tibetan Mastiff, that sort of group in this Eastern dog group. And then you have dogs like the Golden Retriever and Cocker Spaniels that group more in this Western dog group. And this is a deep divide in the genetics of dogs that researchers have never seen before. Do we have any idea when this split occurred? Well, what really helped the study was this new sample the researchers uncovered from a site known as Newgrange, which is kind of the Stonehenge-like site on the east coast of Ireland. And researchers had found a 5,000-year-old dog there, and they were able to use this dog to figure out the timing of the split. And what they found is this split between east and west happened sometime between 6,400 and 14,000 years ago. Okay, so now we have a new kind of date on the timing. What does this say about these two separate piles of dogs that we have? Well, some other genetic analysis suggests that all these dogs had their origin, or at least some of their origin, in Asia. And so that initially led the researchers to conclude that dogs were domesticated in Asia sometime before 14,000 years ago. And then sometime after that, a small subset of these dogs branched off and headed west through Eurasia and became sort of more the European dogs that we 
know today. But the bottom line was, well, all dogs must have come from Asia. There's a twist. There is a twist. Archaeologists have found very ancient dogs in Europe. In fact, there's some dogs in Germany that may be 16,000 years old or older. So if dogs came from Asia less than 14,000 years ago, how do you explain these even older dogs in Europe? Okay. I'm calling it double domestication. (laughs) And that's one of the conclusions the researchers come up with. They think that maybe there was a domestication event in Asia, that some of those dogs traveled west into Europe. But when they got there, they may have encountered dogs that were separately domesticated in Europe. But what the genetics tells us is that if there were dogs in Europe, they pretty much got swamped out by these Asian dogs, that either through interbreeding or competition, that most of this European DNA disappeared. Now, we don't know if it's completely disappeared, but it does seem like if there was a domestication event in Europe, there's very little trace of that left in today's dogs. Didn't something similar happen with cats? Does this mean that domestication is easy? (laughs) Well, you know, there's been some suggestion that cats were domesticated twice, that pigs were domesticated twice. And we sort of think of domestication as this very unusual, very difficult event. Now, if it happened twice with these animals, that doesn't necessarily mean it was easy, but it may have been easier than we thought. Next up, we have a story on coral records. Over time, corals in the ocean add the mineral calcium carbonate to their structures in rings, kind of like trees on land adding rings every year. It's possible these corals might be recording more than just the passage of time as they lay down one mineral ring after the other. What kinds of things, Dave? Well, we're talking about wartime type things, specifically a few wars. There's the opium wars that began in the 19th century, and there's also World War II. Now, what's interesting about both of these wars is that when ships were fighting each other, you had a lot of toxic mercury being dumped into the air and also into the ocean. What's the relationship between mercury and war? Is it just part of the explosives? Right, exactly. It's part of a lot of the explosives that were being used. And this is somehow recorded into a coral. How did a researcher figure that out? Well, these researchers actually extracted a 200-year-old core from a coral in the South China Sea, and that's where some of these conflicts were taking place. And they were looking for just sort of some atmospheric traces of mercury to see how mercury changed over time. But what they saw instead were these really sharp spikes in mercury in these corals, and these spikes lined up exactly with the dates of these wars. And that's a lot different than, say, if you took a core sample of a tree or an ice. That's not how mercury looks in those circumstances, right? I mean, the important thing here is that the corals are actually substituting mercury for something they usually use to grow. So it really becomes an inherent part of their skeleton. The study does leave open a couple of questions, though, like what kind of mercury is being incorporated or how much actually had to be in the atmosphere to create these kind of precise and very elevated spikes. What's the next step here? Well, yeah, there's still some uncertainty, but the researchers are hoping now that they've got this tool that they didn't even know about, they can use it to track mercury both in the atmosphere and the rest of the ocean environment over time. Lastly, we have an update on a classic adaptation story. I remember learning this in intro bio. Dave, why don't you take it? And I remember learning it too. This is a really sort of one of those really neat evolution and action stories. And basically what happened was in the 1800s in England, you had a lot of soot and smoke being belched out of factories. And what that did was it blackened the trees. And there was an animal that lived near these trees called the peppered moth. Now, most of these moths had very bright white wings, but a small percentage of them had very dark wings. And what happened is 
as the trees grew darker, the moths with white wings were really at a disadvantage because they weren't camouflaged anymore and they became very easy prey for predators, whereas the black moths were all of a sudden camouflaged. And what the researchers saw over the decades was that the black moths or the black wing moths really flourished while the white wing moths virtually disappeared. And then it reversed itself as air quality improved. But what's what's missing from the story, Dave? <laughs> well, we didn't really know, believe it or not, the genetics behind what gave these black-winged moths their black wings. What the update is now is we now know the location and the identity of the gene responsible for their ability to switch back and forth. What do we know about this gene, Dave? It's a gene that the researchers really weren't expecting. It's called cortex, and it's a gene that affects cell division and egg development. So you wouldn't necessarily expect it to impact wing color. But what the researchers think happens is that a mutation in the gene somehow drives the growth of tiny scales that cover the wings of these insects, and that these scales, different hues of these scales develop at different speeds, and perhaps the black wing moss had a mutation that allowed them to get more of these darker scales, which hence gave them the darker color. And this has kind of been confirmed in another animal, right? Yeah. What's really interesting is that the same gene, cortex, actually seems to impact the vivid wing variation in butterflies. So getting back to kind of the classic example of adaptation here, we're going to have to change textbooks. Well, I think our kids might be reading different textbooks than we did. <laughs> At least they'll be reading an updated version of this story. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about Pluto's mysterious polygons. These are some strange structures that have been seen on Pluto's surface and what they are exactly. Also a story about how morphine and other opioids can actually sometimes make pain worse. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the French president has backed off talk of suicidal science cuts. We're also following the study that has linked cell phone usage to cancer, at least in rodents, and what it means and doesn't mean for people. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Solar energy, renewable and clean, unfortunately works great during the day, but when energy is needed at night, we come up against a storage problem. Plants solve this by converting solar energy into the chemical energy in sugars, aka photosynthesis. Can an artificial system do the same thing? I spoke with Brendan Cologne about a bionic leaf system that captures light and carbon and converts it to several different types of fuel. So, Brendan, why do we need a bionic leaf? Fundamentally, this addresses several major pushes in renewable technology. One is solar energy storage. So we have great photovoltaics, but you know they can only capture light that instantaneous. And so if we can harvest this energy and store it in a more usable form, say in a chemical bond of a liquid fuel, that'd be really great. We can transport that and use it later. The other thing is we like to be able to build from carbon dioxide. It's a ubiquitous greenhouse gas. And if we could use this gas to build something like a biofuel or a plastic, we could essentially make products out of thin air. Right. And you're taking it out of the air, which is great, too. Um, yeah. Can you describe the setup that you use in this paper? So essentially, the setup is a jar containing minimal media. So it's a media that has 
no really good carbon source, so no sugars, and it contains this bacteria, Ralstonia eutropha. And so immersed into this jar are two water-splitting electrodes. So these water-splitting electrodes, when you apply a current through them, they'll make hydrogen gas, which is a fairly high-energy explosive gas. And what's amazing about Ralstonia is they're able to take the energy and hydrogen and liberate it to drive central metabolism. Ralstonia can also reduce carbon dioxide, so effectively they can take the energy stored as hydrogen gas and use it to take carbon dioxide and make certain compounds out of it. So biomass or anything that you could genetically program into the Ralstonia. So is that what you did here? Were the bacteria either picked for these abilities or were they engineered in some way to work in the system? Well, we can pick any, essentially any bacteria that's able to use hydrogen as an energy source. Is it common for bacteria to be able to use hydrogen as an energy source? Yeah, there's actually a whole clade of bacteria that can do this. They're generally referred to as lithotrophs, and essentially all that means is they can take energy from a non-organic compound. But we picked Ralstonia in particular for a few reasons. Ralstonia has a couple interesting metabolic quirks. It is the industrial producer of a compound called polyhydroxybutyrate, and so this is a bioplastic precursor. And they can convert roughly about 80% of their dry cell weight to this compound. So there's this massive carbon flux that we can take advantage of. And so groups in the past, such as the Sinsky Lab MIT, where we get our strains from, they basically take this pathway, cut it off, and then reroute it to different products. So we've been able to have bacteria that make biofuels and antiseptics. Um, what are some of the hurdles that, that your group and others working on this problem have had to overcome to improve efficiency and, and kind of keep these bacteria alive? I know that that's been a problem. Uh, researchers have been trying to grow Ralstonia or other organisms off of water-splitting catalysts since about the 1960s. And these setups had to address one or two key issues. One is that the electrodes leach heavy metals. And two is that the electrodes can sometimes make reactive oxygen species, or ROS. And so both of these aren't really great if you're trying to grow biology. But we actually address both of these issues simultaneously by using a cobalt-based water-splitting system. For our anode, we use what's called cobalt phosphate, and for our cathode, we use a cobalt phosphide. In addition for this catalyst system to operate at low energy inputs and at neutral pH, neither of these catalysts produce reactive oxygen species, so off the bat, the bacteria aren't being bombarded by mutagens. And under operation, it's actually energetically unfavorable for cobalt to exist freely in the media. So under operation, as the electrodes leach the metals, cobalt will interact with the Ralstonia buffer, which is just phosphate salts, to form cobalt phosphate, and it will actually deposit onto the anode. So this actually maintains submicromolar metal concentrations. And so the bacteria are pretty happy that they're not being bombarded by metals, and the submicromolar metal concentrations that we operate under are much, much below the inhibitory concentration for Ralstonia. One thing you mentioned is that this system is more efficient than a plant at converting sunlight into storable energy. Has this been a long-term goal in the field? Ever since the benchmark for plants and cyanobacteria have been known, it's been a goal to try to beat it, but it was never clear how close we would actually get. So about 50 years ago, uh, we could do a 1% solar to biomass conversion with what is essentially a very similar setup to ours, a water-splitting catalyst paired to Ralstonia. And this 1% is pretty comparable to what plants do. 
A year ago, my group did about 2%, and now we're doing about 10%. So it'll be interesting to see what we do in the future and what other groups would contribute to this field. Um, the benchmark for 10% solar to biomass is important because the theoretical limit of what photosynthesis can do is about 11%. Um, and this is assuming that you completely max out the ability of the photosystems to be working. Right. And so you're using a different biological system to achieve a similar result. Exactly. Exactly. And is this scalable? Is this something that, you know, could work with the solar panels that have already been deployed around the world? For scalability, we operate at about 100 mils in the lab setting. Uh, and we have scaled this up to a liter uh, with pretty minimal losses in efficiency. So we know that scaling isn't immediately limiting the efficiency. Uh, and for solar panels, basically you just hook them up to the electrodes. So there's not a huge energy requirement for these electrodes to work. And they generally require about two volts to function properly. So I would say it's compatible with a lot of this photovoltaics that already exist. So when you gave a volume measurement there, are you talking about the vessel that contains this, this setup? Or is that more about how much output you're getting? So that's the volume of the vessel. Okay. What kinds of fuels has the system been able to make so far? Yeah. So in addition to making polyhydroxybutyrate, which is the bioplastic precursor, we've also been able to make C3, C4, and C5 compounds. And so these are uh, isopropanol, isobutanol, and isoamyl alcohol. You're using solar energy to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it really sounds like a great machine to build. And then I think, oh, plants have been doing this forever. Why do we need these machines to do this when plants are already doing an okay job so far? So first off, uh, plants and cyanobacteria operate at about 1% to 5% solar to biomass yield or solar CO2 reduction efficiency. And we're doing around 10%. So we're actually reducing carbon footprint more than a plant would. Further, plants have their own place in an ecosystem, whereas what we're doing is generally taking solar energy and converting it into a chemical. So there are two different niches that we're occupying between plants and then the bionic leaf. I think the fundamental divide here is utility. So I don't, I don't see Boston Commons becoming Bionic Leaf Park in the near future. Uh, but I do think the technology has a lot of promise for personalized distributed energy source or even just retrofitting smokestacks to try to reclaim CO2 emissions as something more useful. Right. So we shouldn't be making these instead of planting trees. Well, trees have their own aesthetic value, and, the, and these have value for uh, refitting CO2. So I think they both have a place in, in the world. But on that note, making more bionic leaves takes away from the strain on agriculture that's required to actually make most biofuels that we have. So when you're generating biofuels, one of the biggest costs is actually the feedstock. And so you need to generate sugars, which come from plants, to be able to produce these biofuels. Because we're not relying on agriculture we can actually grow these bacteria from CO2. So our bionic leaf doesn't compete with a food source that could otherwise be feeding a population. Brendan, thanks so much for talking with me today. Much thanks, Sarah. Brendan Cologne is a graduate student at Harvard. His group in the system biology department collaborates with a group in the chemistry and chemical biology department on creating a bionic leaf this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi.
On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us.